0: I can't wait to hear from you. The Living Church. Catholic. Evangelical. Ecumenical. sparkling waterfalls, sacred wells, talking animals. Is this a fairy tale or Celtic Christianity? We love to explore things Celtic, don't we? Celtic prayer services, Celtic Christian art, like the Book of Kells, Celtic pilgrimages. Why? Maybe we want a Christianity unburdened and unspoiled by history. And lots of folks of European descent really dig the idea of a truly indigenous European Christianity, a pure Christianity of the British Isles, before it got muddied or co-opted by the pricklier, stick-in-the-mud, dogmatic institution. Obviously, we can get a little romantic about Celtic Christianity, and there are reasons behind it. It has a beautiful visual culture a deep connection to creation, a sense of humor, and of course, a wonderful panoply of saints, many of whose names Americans may struggle to pronounce. But what is Celtic Christianity, actually? Is it helpful or even correct to lump together Irish and Welsh Christianities like that? What do we get wrong? What distinctives of each culture do we miss? And what is actually unique about what God was up to on those wet, cold, beautiful coasts? And how do Welsh people today feel about all this? Well, today we'll be joined by Dr. Sarah Ward Clavier, Senior Lecturer in History at the University of the West in England, Bristol, and a scholar of Anglicanism and early modern political culture. Her forthcoming book is entitled Royalism, Religion, and Revolution, Wales, 1640 to 1688. We're also joined by her husband, the Reverend Dr. Mark Clavier, residentiary canon at Brecon Cathedral, and the author of Reading Augustine on Consumer Culture, Identity, the Church, and Rhetorics of Delight. And our conversation is led by Dr. Hannah Mattis, Associate Professor of Church History at Virginia Theological Seminary. Finally, I was joining as a fly on the wall, and you can listen if you want to for my cameo at the end. Now grab your handcrafted Iona coffee mug and hold on to your prayer books for this fascinating conversation about the complex and surprising history of Celtic British Christianity.
1: A little bit about where you are, particularly for us Americans who don't know Welsh geography all that well. What is special about Brecon and the Brecon Beacons?
2: Yeah, so we're coming from Brecon Cathedral, which is in sort of south-central Wales, north of what you call what you just mentioned, the Brecon Beacons, which are a beautiful range of mountains uh, here in Wales, uh, very popular. Uh, partly because you can get to the top of them without having to strain yourself too much. Uh, Brecken Cathedral is a relatively new cathedral, only became a cathedral uh, about 100 years ago, Um, but it was a medieval priory founded not long after the Norman Conquest. And we have a font here that we still baptize children and adults in that has been uh, used since uh, around 1100. And um, uh, after the Reformation, it was dissolved, but because it had been a monastery and a parish church, it wasn't uh, destroyed. Uh, It became a parish church until it became a cathedral a hundred years ago. So a good long history and a privilege to minister from here. How close
1: are you to the Welsh border? Wales is often overshadowed by the presence of Irish immigration. Uh, Americans, and now most recently with President Biden, are very aware of being Irish. Uh, You know, you hear stories about Chicago dying, it's River Green, and all the rest of it. Um, Many Americans also trace their ancestry to Scotland. Uh, I know certainly there was a Highland Games in my hometown every year. And in Alexandria, where I live now, we have a parade and so on. So all of these sentimental attachments in America inform, I think, how we approach Celtic Christianity. But of course, Celtic Christianity in America is a bit different than it is in the church in England and Wales. Uh, What does it mean for you and how does it work in the church there?
2: Well, in terms of the church in Wales, uh, the striking thing is how little you'll hear mention of Celtic Christianity. Uh, You will hear uh, people talking about the, the, the early British church here and especially the age of the saints uh saint david Dewey Saint, uh and some of the other saints from uh that period and there's there's long been a, a kind of romantic appeal to them uh in the in the dedication of 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 places like our training institute here st patrons but it 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 doesn't have it doesn't have the same kind of hold on the church here, like uh, evocations of the early Irish Church, by which most people actually mean the 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 Iona and and Northern Irish uh, Church, uh, has has hold on the imagination of of, of people elsewhere. Uh, and I think it has something to do, uh, and 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 Sarah can talk more about this, I suspect. But it has something to do with the long history of the Church here in in Wales. Um and uh it, it being embedded within the Church of England during the the the, the Middle Ages and, and, and afterwards, that, that that kind of made it much more of the mainstream church than, than the later romantics thought of the Irish Church as 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 being.
3: It's a strange thing if you look at the Welsh moving around the world. Uh that unlike the Irish and perhaps the Scots, the Welsh um it it said don't seem to have these uh, cohesive communities um, in the same way. Um, You even see this in London. Now, of course, the Welsh were there, there, and we know the Welsh were um, in America. Uh, The work of um, Bill Jones from Cardiff has spoken a lot about uh, Welsh communities, particularly mining communities in the US. But Elsewhere, and particularly earlier, the Welsh seem to go to places and then diffuse um, and keep in contact with each other in other ways than living in one single community. So they might shop together, they might uh, worship together, um, they might um, bespeak services only from connections who are Welsh. But I think that's much less visible than the big kind of cultural presence um, that you see in the U.S. and you know even even to a certain extent in in London.
1: When I walked the North Wales Way several years ago, and I was struck by uh, what Mark was saying earlier about the very local nature of identity. Um, every twenty miles, it seemed like there was a very distinct. You know, you, you moved into sort of a distinct zone of where you were. So the the, so the very strong sense of local local Welsh identity, but maybe not anything. I mean, not anything much bigger than that uh, beyond the Welsh language. Uh, in America, I mean, it it also seems that Ira, uh, certainly um, Ireland has commercialized even its own identity precisely to appeal to American tourism. And that's not really something that Wales has done. So we have a sort of complicated idea when we talk about Celtic Christianity, um, where I think Americans read into it, one monolithic thing when in fact there is a huge amount of regional variation depending on where you are. Can you discuss the ancient British church
3: uh, like as an ideal where did it come from historically why do people appeal to it? The idea of the ancient British church um ties into wider ideas of ancient Britons and uh in inverted commas the, the British history um formed part of a kind of wider narrative, connecting to the work of Geoffrey of Monmouth um, and later Brita Brunhynnoith and other Welsh chronicles and collections of stories. Um, And it formed part of a claim to Welsh historical distinctiveness, uh, one which was very much strongly defended in the early modern period um, and subsequently, actually, Uh, in the early modern period, by people as diverse as John Bale, John Leland, Edmund Spencer, and Sir John Price. And it was a big part of Welsh cultural identity. Uh, And so when the Church of England was being established in its early days, and it it needed almost a kind of foundation myth, a a kind of purer, uh, cleansed sense of what this new church would be, it was ideal to appeal to or to connect to the ancient Celtic church, uh, which meant that the the new church became old. Uh, It became connected to a a culture, a Welsh culture, that was really identified with ancientness. This idea of ancientness was at its very core. And so Celtic Christianity, I suppose, and the, the ancient British church both fitted in with the Welsh idea of who they were,
2: what they were, uh, and also suited the powers of the time. And the interesting thing about the interesting thing about what, what Sarah's saying there is, is how different that is from uh, the early medieval period, where the British uh, church is sort of the, 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 the poor cousin of the Irish. Um, Bede is is doesn't have a lot of good to say about the British Christians as opposed to the Iona mission. Uh, and um, probably even wrote the British out of the involvement in the baptism of of Edwin. Uh, so you kind of get this this myth of of British or what we might call now Welsh Christians as as being so set against the the, the Anglo Saxons that they don't engage in their the mission to them, unlike the Irish who do and and, and go there. And that becomes a very powerful myth in the in the in the early um, uh, representation of of British Christianity. Um, and, and it is for that reason I I, I know Welsh clergy uh who uh, you, you don't mention Bede to them. <laughs> Bede is not considered uh, a, a hero of uh, of of the of the Anglican church uh, in some quarters.
1: There is an interesting school of thought among historians that, that has recognized uh, Bede is so often seen as sort of an archetypal scholar, archetypal British historian, and yet he had an axe to grind. And that's something that historians have really come round to. So, uh, you know, Bede, even as a kind of fundamentalist, Patrick, the historian Patrick Wormald famously said. Um, and so, and Bede, for Bede, from his particular vantage point, Um, he saw the British, in other words, the Welsh, as apostate. You know, it was Gildas had railed at them and they had failed to listen. And as a consequence, they had lost Christianity. So in a way, in his mind, they were everything that his new English nation was trying not to be. Uh, And yet at the same time, particularly by the time you get to the late Middle Ages, you've got Geoffrey of Monmouth and you have Gerald of Wales and you have all these stories, the sort of mythical British past that... You know, maybe is a function, maybe is a function of the sort of conquering, uh, the sort of conquering mindset. You know, projecting sort of fantasy over the frontier, um, which so often happens.
2: It, it didn't. It didn't hurt that a lot of the early Welsh saints become associated with King Arthur. Absolutely.
1: So, so you have this sort of fascinating, fascinating tensions where the there are these there is this old ambivalence that goes right back to Bede. Um, but then uh, at the same time, you have this tradition of stories and the immense popular, popularity of Arthuriana and everything that's swirling around. And so uh, so when in the Reformation, they're trying to come up with, the, you know, Cranmer and others are sort of reaching out to put their hands on something, something that is primitive, something that is... You know, that they can shove in the face of the Church of Rome and say, we were here first, or we have access to an ancient, primitive tradition of Christianity, that's what they put their fingers on. But what's wrong with a vision of Celtic or British Christianity that's seen as alternative to or different from the medieval church? What's what's wrong
3: with that? Well, I... I... I mean, with my 17th century Welsh hat on, I would say uh, nothing. It's absolutely right. Uh, No, uh, that that would be my Welsh polemicist answer. Um, I do think it's interesting that in adopting the idea of um, an ancient British church, uh, they didn't take along with them the uh, immense visual culture that was very much an inherent part of Uh, Welsh Christianity and continued to be until the 17th century. You know, kind of lots and lots of kind of remaining wall paintings, um, statuary, etc., that escaped the notice of um, of Henry VIII's commissioners uh, and of the authorities. So they were able to ignore the kind of visual tradition. Uh, somehow, I guess, because it didn't suit them, um, not to take inspiration from that. And they they were also able to almost disconnect it from um, the kind of wider Welsh history, uh, at least in within the English tradition, into uh, English polemic, into English uh, kind of Protestant polemic. Uh, it, it kind of, you get this you like the bits that fit, and you and you just don't talk about the other bits.
2: One of the things I think is is striking, and 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 again, Sarah can speak more about this. But one of the things that really strikes me about Welsh, the Welsh Church, is, in comparison to the Irish Church, let's say, is the Irish Church or the appeals to the Celtic Christianity, in many ways, all is all about is about a breach that there was this pure church in the past. It, it was taken over by the Roman mission and is being restored at the Reformation, where the thing that really strikes me about being in Wales, and part of this is due to the fabric, to the, the churches and the memory of the holy wells, the importance of place and the way that place names evoke um, uh, the, the, the church of the past, all the places in Wales that begin with the, uh, the word flan, uh, which is a holy place. Is is the continuity that 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 the faith has continued here from its arrival in in Roman times. There's a there's a place nearby that I I love to take visitors to called Chagnes, uh, and Clan Gorse is a is a is a lake, uh, and on the south side of Chagnes is a parish church and the parish church is Victorian, beautiful Victorian, one of the earliest of the Tractarian. Churches here in Wales, but the site on which the church is located um, was uh, the 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 site of Saint Gasty, uh, who was a early Welsh missionary operating there in the sixth century, uh, and to think that has been uh, a holy place since then, largely without break, is is an amazing thought, you know, that they were there were Christians there hundred and fifty years before Bede was putting pen to to parchment. Uh, so there is this strong sense here, I think, as a as a as an outsider of of the ancientness of the church and and the continuity that is such an essential part of Catholicity.
3: I think um, continuity was very much part of Welshness and Welsh historical perceptions of themselves that the um who your your lineage was you know tracing back in some cases to Adam, obviously because you know all good men are Welshmen, where we see a breach with this is uh, the mid nineteenth century, which is where we get um the current popular at least within Britain view of the Welsh as inherent. Radicals and nonconformists um, the historian Thomas Rees actually explicitly wrote that he wanted to change the idea of the Welsh their own idea from being obedient Anglicans to being to being nonconformists uh, and to change the historical perception of Wales at least in the 17th century as being the uber Anglican um, place within the British Isles uh, the place where um, people were just stereotypically loyal to the church to the king uh and to the and and to welsh culture all these things tying together so yeah definitely continuity being at the heart of it
0: If you've got anything that you want Christian leaders and clergy to know about, especially in the Anglican communion, a conference, a product, a new book, this podcast might be the niche for you. If you are a publisher, if you're in education, if you are in the nonprofit sector, church technology, vestments, or anything in between, what I'm getting at is we would love to advertise for you right here on this podcast. Our audience is cross-generational and interdenominational. So, if you're interested, shoot me an email and let's talk. Contact me, Amber Noel, at Amber Noel at Living That's A M B E R N O E L at livingchurch.org. When I When I walked
1: the North Wales Way, you know, you begin at Holywell, which is uh, this wonderful medieval pilgrimage site. And I was struck at walking pace by how you. It's almost like sort of you're in a tree. You're walking through like tree rings of history, just these layers and layers and layers. And you go past a Roman lighthouse, and then you keep walking, and you know, just you, you keep encountering the layers. But I guess the juxtaposition of this medieval pilgrimage route to Bardsey at the end of the Lynn Peninsula. But by the time you, but then you pass a Tudor church at Klinog Far on the way there, and again, the sort of the the early modern and the medieval are enmeshed, in, and there is this certainly when, you, when you're there, there is this sort of very strong experience of continuity that you you encounter. Um, one of the other things that's interesting, I think, about this whole idea, even of Irish Christianity as somehow being alternative or Celtic, what's all the interesting thing that, that's always said about Iona, which is, again, is the sort of heart of this idea of uh, Irish Christianity, Celtic Christianity as being somehow separate, um, Iona is its own little weird thing. You know, the the irony is that they are sticking the muds uh, specifically with regard to the dating of Easter. But all the rest of Ireland is actually in communion with Rome at that point. It's just this one little monastic federation that's this independent outpost that somehow, like, put its stake in the ground for for how it wants to calculate Easter. Um, But it's not, that position is not characteristic of the Irish church as a whole.
2: Yeah, I used to, I used to, I used to refer to them as the continuing Irish church um, because they were this, you know, they were the traditionalists, weren't they? Uh, and I've always, I've always thought it's interesting that there should have been this capturing of a so-called Irish church in a moment of its history to the neglect of the next, you know, 1500 years of the Irish Church, um, which in some ways is 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 uh, you know insulting to the to the, the vast history of the Irish of Irish Christianity.
3: I often wonder what would ha- what would have happened if well if the Restoration had never happened, uh, and all you had of the glimpse of the Welsh Church was um, in in the interregnum, you know, a church uh, very conservative, very uh, much trying to keep hold of its traditions under pressure and under ban um in secret in in refuges um and by closed networks of people and I I often wonder if if that had been the lasting impression or the moment upon which our knowledge was based on what we'd think of it now so I guess one of the things I'm curious about
1: and I always ask my students when we when we talk about Celtic Christianity is what maybe why Americans in particular then are still so drawn to this idea of Celtic Christianity. And I always ask them, what, the, you know, what is the work that it's doing in the contemporary American church? If it rests on such shaky historical foundations, if you know, we can question it for a number of different reasons, if Celtic doesn't apply to you know Irish or Welsh or all the rest of it, Independently, like so. Why do we keep using it? Why do we keep reaching out to it? Um, and one of the things I think the reasons that people reach toward Celtic Christianity uh, is that they are looking for more environmentally friendly and ecology conscious approaches uh, within Christianity. Animals do pop up, you know, Cuthbert's otters in Irish hagiography uh, and in the lives of the saints. So, if it's if it's not an independent church, if it's not an alternative to Rome, what do we make of that ecological presence? And if we don't want to use the label Celtic Christianity, what sort of theological resources can we take up for the care of creation that that don't rely on the use of that term?
2: Well, the, um, uh, uh, first, I should say that when you said Cuthbert, uh, my dog Cuthbert looked up, so he thought you were talking to him. Um, it's interesting because the, the, the association of, of Celtic Christianity with environmentalism is, of course, a, a fairly recent development. Uh, you know, the original one, as we've just been saying, the appeal to it was very much as, as uh, in opposition to, to Rome. And I've always thought uh, both uh, the Welsh Church and the, the Irish Church Celtic Christianity benefits from the scarcity of sources. Uh, there's just enough there to pique the imagination, but, but not enough there to to easily dismiss things that people pin on to, uh, to the notion of Celtic Christianity. Uh, and I used to, when I was teaching the medieval church at, at Cardiff, one of the things I would point out is for all the imagery that you can find of animals and creation in Celtic Christianity, you can find the exact same thing in, in Continental. Uh, uh, Christianity. Uh, Long before Francis himself, you get plenty of uh, things like that. And I love all the literature you find on the continent about uh, creation um, breaking out, uh, in some ways recognizing the resurrection, as we get in uh, one of the verses of uh, Hail the Festival Day. Um, But I, I can't so much speak to... The 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 Irish equation of this, except for again picking things out of texts, but I think there is a Welsh contribution to the care of creation, and it and it goes back to what you were saying about uh, the encounter of local, uh, and there is something about the Welsh Church that is deeply rooted in its landscape and in its, its, its local heritage and local identities, um, that at least in my own theological work it, 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 you know, resonates powerfully with people like Wendell Berry in, in, in the States. Um, and, and this notion uh, in the way that, uh, that that Christian identity maps onto earlier identities um, you know, romanticized, but things like the Holy Wells, or we have we have a church nearby uh, that is a medieval church, much restored in the Victorian era, uh, in the narthex of which are the remains of a memorial stone that goes back to the sub-Roman period, so sort of 6th century. And in the churchyard is a yew tree that's something like 3,000 years old uh, and suggested it was a sacred site before Christians ever arrived there. Uh, so there is, I think there is something that the Welsh Church can offer of a kind of creation care that takes seriously the places where we find ourselves and, and husbanding and stewarding those places where we find ourselves. Um, that that is is a very is very very powerful. Um, I would invite anybody to come to Wales and and encounter it firsthand. I I find it very very moving when I when I come across it. Now having said that, I, I encountered exactly the same thing on the local level, uh, walking in in Italy and in the south of France. Um, uh, it, maybe the thing about America is lacking that. It, it, it then makes us uh overly sensitive to uh to it when we find it elsewhere
3: i just just two points um uh first about animals um actually one of the more common points that's made about the font in Bracken cathedral is, oh gosh, what, what a lovely, it's, it's it's interlaced with animals and not work and that kind of thing. Uh, the odd green man is, oh, how wonderfully Celtic this all is. This This must be from the Celtic period. And People either don't believe you or or, or um, look very sad when they tell you actually no it's Norman um, <laughs> and very much maybe it may have been done by Welsh masons we don't know but that actually the fact that it's got animals and knotwork and green men on is it's it's not that it's some kind of pagan flourishing or uh, some kind of wellspring of Celtic Christianity it's actually that it's uh, it's it's Norman and. Um, and therefore completely (laughs) disconnected from all of that. People want to believe it. Um, And I think it says something about the 18th century, the power of the 18th century myths of uh, abandoned ruins and uh, pixies and, uh, you know, all these kind of stories, wonderful stories that were told in that period that, uh, that they kind of endure within the popular imagination. Well, and I always tell
1: my students, of course, that if you actually go back, the, the half uncial that everybody uses on every pub sign in America is originally a Roman font. Um, there are historical reasons that the Irish use it. They get all the old manuscripts and they keep using it. But actually, it's a Roman font. There's nothing originally pagan or Celtic about it. Um, and yet, uh, as I say, it's 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 seen as somehow inherently uh, Celtic
3: in some interesting ways. I think it's it's also that the, the kind of Celtic stuff is, um, at least in a British context, a modern British context, unthreateningly um, potentially non-religious or religious in a way that we can kind of pass into acceptability. It's something that's that's connected to a landscape that even though we might not want to go to church, we can still find a connection with. Um, so I think it's the in some ways... For non-believers, Celtic Christianity is sometimes the acceptable face of religion, uh, in a sense. That might be putting it too strongly, I don't know. <laughs> I,
1: I would say that's exactly right. Um, one of the things my students tell me when I ask them, you know, what what is the work that Celtic Christianity is doing in, in the Episcopal Church? And somebody nearly always says that their church uses a Celtic liturgy, described, however, as a... Um, as a, uh, a service intended either for people who are allergic to the institutional church, or they've been burned by it, or for whatever reason, it's a kind of halfway point for them. Um, and, I mean, ironically, in a good way, I, I think that the Episcopal Church in an American context, you know, requires a lot of the people who walk through the door um, it you know it requires books, it requires music literacy, it requires a lot of things, and and so I think one of the reasons that uh, the Episcopal Church tends to turn to Celtic services is that it's a good evangelistic tool, um, and it's a good evangelistic tool, and it's a good non as you say non threatening way to bring in people. Uh, the question is, are there better ways that we can reach people or not scare people? That, that don't necessarily rely on hazy 19th century notions about
3: what, what Celtic is. I, I kind of, um, my, my second point was actually going to answer this question in a certain sense, that certainly what made the 17th century uh, church in Wales so strong was that um, the church belonged to our land, Englad. glad. the church was our church, a Edlois. It was part of who we were. The clergy were either Welsh or had Welsh connections for the most part, and visitation articles demanded that they were able to um, preach in Welsh as well as English. Um, They were connected by kin to local people. Uh, They uh, were part of local communities. Um, they, They had the language, they knew the culture, they researched Welsh history, Um, And, of course, they were by no means all perfect and by no means kind of paragons of of clergy-ness, if that's a word. Um, It's not. But but they had a certain fairness, a certain um, belonging, and I think potentially whether you're in America or whether you're in Wales, that sense of you are from us and you are with us is actually extremely powerful um, and wedded to a sense of history and a sense of uh, people's place within that history. That, that is actually a very powerful way of reaching people, potentially. I was going to ask Mark, as the Patristic Scholar here, um, I,
1: I've i had a hunch that, that one of the reasons animals crop up in the way that they do, or one of the reasons that nature crops up in hagiography in the way that it does, is connected actually to sort of this patristic literature on the incarnation, the idea that that Christ entering into creation has ripple effects that extend out into creation. Um, so I was wondering if maybe one of the reasons, you know, whenever my students talk about, you know, how do we come up with a better environmental or ecological poetics, one of the things that I tell them is, you know, you I mean, in some ways, you know, go back to, uh, you know, you can go back to somebody like Gregory Nazianzen or Gregory Nyssa, but to, to reach back into the Patristic tradition for a stronger theology of incarnation.
2: Yeah. No. Exactly. And uh, I mean, even someone who people wouldn't immediately associate with any of this, like my old friend Augustine. Um, I mean, Augustine has a strong sense of of creation, um, proclaiming the incarnate. Christ and 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 proclaiming God in its in its beauty, there is plenty of source material in the entire church, and I, and I think actually in some ways even more powerfully in the the in the patristic and medieval churches uh, than we have today of of the the fruits of the incarnation and and redemption reaching out into all of creation. Uh, one of my favorite sermons is to is to take the marriage uh, command that those whom God has joined together let no one put asunder, as as really the kind of the mission statement of of Christianity that the incarnation proclaims that that in a world that tries to put asunder heaven and and earth, uh, our our incarnational ministry to uh, not only the souls that we encounter but to the sustaining and flourishing of creation is to hold heaven and earth together.
1: Thank you so much, uh, Drs. Mark Clavier and Sarah Ward-Clavier for your company and for the wonderful conversation.
0: Guys, that was great. That was fascinating. I was working on a spreadsheet the whole time that you were talking, so it was much more interesting with this in the background. (laughs) (laughs) Let me assure you. Thanks once again for tuning into the Living Church Podcast, a ministry of the Living Church Institute. Don't forget to support the podcast and all we do at the Living Church by going to livingchurch.org forward slash donate or click the link in the show notes. You can give once or make it monthly. Even $5 a month is such a blessing, really. Finally, don't forget to tune in again in a couple of weeks for the next episode. And if you're not good with dates, subscribe to the Living Church Podcast and never miss a conversation. I'm your host, Amber Noel, and it's been good to be with you.
2: Peace.